Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. All right, guys, uh, let's get our Bibles out and get ready to go to Ezekiel. And we're going to pray and get into this week's message. Lord, we are so... uh, Lord, I've been anticipating this, this moment all week long. And so, Lord, I just have an expectation. And I pray that that expectation of faith would rise up in every single person that's here this morning. And that they would be able to latch a hold of everything that you want to do in our lives and in our city. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing week two of our Stand in the Gap series. And I'm going to share several of my uh, some of my favorite stories of God doing things through people. And so uh, some of these are through history and, and just some of my favorite ones. The first one is a guy named George Mueller, who was a, uh, a Christian evangelist, a Christian missionary. And he, he served and, and helped, uh, it's estimated like 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. And he tells a story of a persistent prayer that he prayed over his lifetime in one of, in one of his journal entries that he would pray several times. And In November of 1844, he wrote down five different people that he wanted to pray that would come to Jesus. They pray for. They they didn't know God, but he wanted to pray, and he began to pray. And he was going to pray every day. He was going to pray whether uh, he was sick or in health. He was going to pray whether he was on land or at sea. He was going to pray whether he had stuff going on in his calendar or not. But he was going to pray every single day for these five people to come to Jesus. And so after the first 18 months, the first one came to Christ. And so he celebrated that, but he continued to pray for the next four. Five years later, a second one came to know Jesus. And so he celebrated that, but... I mean, day after day, he continued to pray year after year. The sixth year, the third one came to know Christ, and he continued to pray for the other two who had not come to Jesus yet. And so he would pray day in and day out, and it didn't matter what the situation was or what his circumstance was, but he continued to pray. 36 years later, he wrote that the other two had still not come to Jesus yet. And he continued to pray. They were two sons of a good friend of his, but he continued to pray. He, he wrote in his journal, he said, but, but I hope in God. I pray on and look for the answer. They're not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 50 plus years after he first started praying for them, both of them came to know Christ. This was two years after George Mueller died. And, and it's just a testimony of the power of prayer. How do you guys believe that prayer works, okay? Many times we can't always see the effects immediately. We don't get to see it necessarily all in the first year. We don't always get to see it in the first decade even, but if we're consistently uh, partnering with God in some way, that God comes through. And so this week in this series, we're talking about how God is looking for people who will stand in the gap. That's exactly what George Mueller did. Many of you guys have friends and family members right now that you can think of right now who don't know Jesus. And we get discouraged from time to time. We just wonder, are they ever going to come to Christ? I want to encourage you just right out of the gate this morning to continue to believe God, to pray for them, because prayer works. Here's what we know, and we talked about this last week, that without God, man cannot do it. How many of you guys believe that? Without God, we can't do it. But... Without man, God will not do it. He's looking for someone to stand in the gap. Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30. It says, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap, so in the wall, so that I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. This is our theme for our stand in the gap offering a series where we're, we're really just stepping out by faith, believing that God has put us as a church in this city for the long term, for the long haul. And we're standing in the gap uh, for this city. We're standing in the gap for people in this city. We want to be a church that stands in the gap for this community, that blesses this community. This, this community would miss us if we were gone. That's the kind of church we want to be. We want to become more and more effective at that in everything that we do. 
And so we're launching our offering for our building fund, and we don't even know what that's going to be yet, but we're taking a step of faith, and you can participate through giving all throughout this series and give to several ways you can do that. I'm not going to go into that right now, but I just want to encourage you to participate. It's not about, you know, an amount that everybody's giving. It's about sacrificing by faith and just saying, I'm going to step out by faith and believe that God wants us here for the long haul to stand in the gap for this city and for this generation. How many of you guys remember uh, in junior high when you, anybody, anybody run track or anything in junior high? Anybody? How many of you guys just love running? Any of you love running? Several of you. Two, one of you. One and a half. How many of you guys loathe the very thought? I mean, I've just ruined your week by just talking about running. All right, several of you, okay, we're praying for your conversion and that the Lord would get a hold of your hearts. Well, when I was in junior high, I didn't have a lot of success running. I didn't like running at all. We were from a very small school, and so you made the track team just by breathing. And so you were, you were on the team if you volunteered. And so we went to this one big, huge track meet one time, and it was like all the big schools uh, to us. It was all the big schools, and we're all competing against one another. And so there we were, the little school, the underdogs. It's a perfect Disney movie going on, you know, where we were underdogs, and there's no way we should win. And we were running this, this relay race where you have to pass the baton back to, to you know, four different people and they have to pass the baton. I can't remember how far it was. It was either the 400 meter, but in my mind, it was probably like the the four mile. And so I was running one of the legs of the race. And I think I was the third or maybe I was the second person in the leg. And so we start off and we're running and it's like the chariots of fire moment. I mean, we're just like slow motion. Everything's going on. And pretty soon as we're making our way around the the track, we realize we're, we're winning. We are winning. And so we pass the baton. I pass the baton to the next person. I stand back and I'm watching the rest of our team. And we're in the lead. We're, I mean, it's amazing. We're going to beat these bigger schools. It, this would have just, I mean, this would have just changed our whole, you know, growing up if we would win this race. And so there we are. The last person is getting ready to take the baton. And everything's in slow motion. We're cheering, you know, in slow motion. And everything's just going great. We're winning. And all of a sudden, they, they pass the baton to the last guy, and he drops the baton. Yeah. Scar in here somewhere, guys. It's a, it's a perpetual wound that hasn't healed. That was my one shot at some athletic glory that was just shot down, and it wasn't even my fault on that one. So it's one of the few that wasn't my fault on that one. But, but I think there's a picture there of... Uh, what happens and what God wants to do in different generations. And different generations, I believe that the batons are passed from one generation to the next. Batons are passed from one movement to the next. Batons are passed from one revival to the next. And sadly, many people, whenever the baton gets passed to a certain generation, that the last generation was successful, the next generation, sadly, many times drops the baton. And so... What I want to talk about today is how I believe that God doesn't want us to drop that baton. That what he's, we're going to see a picture here in Ezekiel's day of what I believe God wants to do in our day. And we have the choice. Will we run the race that God has put in front of us or will we drop the baton? And so we see this in, in the book of Ezekiel and we talked about it last week. But let me just set it up just a little bit for, to fill in a little bit of the gaps. You see, even though they had seen revival in their day, in Ezekiel's day, some 25 to 30 years earlier, really around the time Ezekiel was born, somewhere along the way they had they dropped and they fumbled the baton and they turned away from God. The result is that an, an invading army came in and they got taken away in 597 BC in, by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon. And so they had fumbled the baton. They'd had a chance at revival under Josiah who'd, who'd come and made everything, uh, tried to set everything back right, but some of them just didn't uh, go along with it. You know, there's this misbelief that if everything goes right, everybody's going to like it. And I think sometimes we, we think, man, everybody's just going to go along with revival. Everybody's just going to go along with what God wants. If everything goes right, but that's not what happened in Josiah's day. It's not, and, and everybody didn't quite go along with it. 
And so we see this happen in the book of Ezekiel that God calls Ezekiel. He takes him out of, out of Jerusalem into Babylon at 25 years old. Five years later, he becomes a pastor, priest, prophet to the people. And he begins to proclaim this message. And God gives him all sorts of visions and allegories and weird stuff to do. And we talked about a lot of that last week. And here we see in Ezekiel chapter 37, another one of those visions that God is painting a picture of what he wants to do. And I believe this is what he wants to do in our lives today, right now, and what he wants to do in our generation, in our church, in our city. It's a picture of what he wants to do. So I want to ask for some audience participation today, and I want you to use your imagination and see this in your mind's eye, see this in your spirit, what's actually happening, this being painted in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. So imagine a valley just covered. I mean, just try to picture this, a valley, and there's just bones everywhere. It was full of bones, and he led me around and among them, and behold, there were many, very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Picture the, this idea of all these bones that are dry, crusty, brittle, parched, a parched land. And God comes and he asks the question to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answered, he says, and I answered, oh Lord God, you know. You guys know that's not really an answer, is it? <laughs> it's just a little key from Ezekiel. When you don't know the answer, just say, Lord, you know, <laughs> you know. That's what Ezekiel did. He says, Lord, you, you know. He's painting a spiritual picture. And the spiritual equivalent is this, that God's people sometimes can become spiritually dry, spiritually brittle and parched. This not only happens in different seasons of our life, because I think every single one of us here, if you've been following Jesus for very long, you've gone through different dry seasons. This also happens in generations. This happens in churches and denominations. And there's a picture of a very dry people, very dry people of God. And whenever the people of God are dry, whenever you find your family in a spiritually dry place, you need a movement of God to come into your life. You need a fresh movement. Church is not supposed to be just an institution. It is supposed to be a movement there's supposed to be a fresh movement of God's spirit blowing through us as his people. And God wants to do that in, not just in our lives, but he wants to do that in this area. I believe God planted us here as a church for the purpose of spiritual transformation. Supernaturally. We're not just here just to be another event on Sunday morning, but to actually affect things spiritually. To affect the culture and the climate of what happens in this area. Do you realize that this area, the feeling ought to change spiritually of what happens in this area because churches like Journey Church are here? That it ought to affect something, not just practically, even though that's fine, but it ought to affect something spiritually, supernaturally. And there's the question that I want to ask again that I asked last week, and is this, are we standing in the gap for that to happen, or are we standing in the way of that happening? Because it's easy to do, it's easy to just be in the way. And so Ezekiel says, you know, Lord, whether these things can live or not. And verse four, then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Amen. So whenever God wants to do something, he needs a man or he needs a woman to get that done. He's looking for someone to stand in the gap. Could God have just spoken to these bones? Absolutely. But those bones would have remained dry had God not had an Ezekiel. The dry bones spiritually inside of us are going to remain dry, inside of our families, inside of this city are going to remain dry unless we have some Ezekiels rise up. 
who are willing to partner with God in what he wants to do in this city and in this area. Because this, here's what I want you to catch. Every movement of God begins as a move of God in someone's heart. God just doesn't just just do something. No, someone, somewhere, God starts to, they start to have, before revival ever happens outside or externally, it happens internally in somebody's heart. And that begins to spread into other people. If revival is ever going to happen, it's not going to happen just in a church service spontaneously. It's going to happen because somebody was having a revival on the inside of their heart. That's how it happens. We see this all throughout history. We see the, you know, the, the great stories of like the Reformation where Martin Luther said, man, something is going on, something that just isn't right. I'm just not, I'm not settled with status quo. And God began to move on his heart and he began to have a revival in his heart. And he goes up to the Wittenberg door and nails the 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door. And it starts not just a revival, but a revolution. We see in the, the great awakenings and revivals throughout history, we see the different things and different stories that happen. We hear of guys like, John Wesley and all these guys in the Great Awakening. And, but every move of God begins as a move. Every movement of God begins as a move of God in somebody's heart. Do you realize the Great Awakening, original Great Awakening in the 1700s didn't just, just happen? It happened as people started to have revival inside. It happened as the dry bones inside of their heart that no one else could see began to be life-filled again. So one of my favorite stories about John Wesley is that he's a guy who grew up in a Christian home. How many of you guys grew up in a Christian home? Let's just see a show of hands. So you guys, look, at, look all over the building. Most people here grew up in a Christian home. So John Wesley, he knew what you're talking about. He grew up in a Christian home, and he was, I mean, he was living what was the outwardly the Christian life. He was, in fact, on a ship when he was in his uh, lower 30s in age, and he was 30-something, he's on a boat on his way on a missionary trip, going on a mission trip to go convert some Indians, I believe. And he's on his way to go on a missions trip, growing up in Christian home, Christian fam, all that stuff. And a storm comes on the sea, begins to start to get really bad, starts to break up the boat. It seems like it's going to all fall apart and they're going to drown. They're out there in the middle of the ocean. It's not like you have a, a, a helicopter that can come and save you in those days. There's, no, there's nothing. I mean, you're not going to paddle your way across the ocean back home. It's just, this is it if this is it. And everybody's crying out. Everybody's freaking out. People are hanging on to the ship, crying out. They're, they're just losing it. John Wesley's losing it. And he's like, this is it. Everybody's freaking out except for he looks over and there's a group of people that seem completely calm. They're a group of Moravians. I'll tell you about them in just a little bit. But they were over there just singing hymns. Their kids playing on the boat in the midst of this storm. And he goes, he, he looked at them and he had a quick in, exchange with them. And he realized in that moment, he said, wow, they trust God so much right now. And I am freaking out right now. I don't even know if I know God. Christian home, on a missions trip, and he comes to the conclusion that he doesn't even know God, that he's never been saved, that he's never given his heart to Jesus because he doesn't have the trust like they had. And he goes through this process over the next few years. They, they, they get back on land, everything works out, but he knows he's troubled on the inside and he goes and he searches for a few years and he's trying to figure this out and he knows he, he, he's not right with God. And finally one night he comes and he, he, he goes to a Bible study slash prayer meeting and they start to read the preface to the Romans by that guy, Martin Luther. And as he's at that prayer meeting and that Bible study, he said, I felt my heart grows strangely warmed. And all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, God began to move on those dry bones on the inside of him. And they started to come to life. He became one of the great revivalists as that revival started to happen in him. He would travel some 225,000 miles preaching the gospel, mostly on horseback. People estimate some 50,000 sermons. That's a lot of sermons if you do the calculations over 50 years he would get up at 4 a.m. just to be there in time for the crowds to be able to hear him come and preach before they would go to work. And God did this massive, massive revival. But I want you to know the revival would not have happened had it not started inside of his heart. 
So, so many times we're waiting for externals to happen when God is looking for an internal to happen. He's looking for something inside of us to begin to happen. These Moravians that I was talking about, this is a group of people who made a journey from Moravia to a place called Hernhut to settle a colony that had been recently established there. And something started to stir in their heart. They longed for God to move in their generation. They wanted to carry the baton well. And so they decided, 24 of them decided to make a pact together that they would have a prayer meeting that lasted 24 hours. Every person would take an hour, and by that, they would create a continuous prayer meeting over 24 hours. And so they did that. Each one took a turn all through the night, all through the day. Each one came in and clocked their hour. Well, they continued that, and they continued that. And this prayer meeting didn't just last 24 hours. The prayer meeting lasted days. The prayer meeting didn't just last days. They continued this prayer meeting for months. Continuing this prayer meeting. This prayer meeting didn't just last months. It lasted years. Didn't just last years, it lasted decades. This was a continuous prayer meeting that started and continued for a hundred years long. Generation to generation, God began to move. Why? Because someone somewhere decided they were going to have a move of God on the inside of their heart. And that's what it's going to take. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 7. So I prophesied. So Ezekiel prophesied as he was commanded and as he prophesied as a prophesied there was a sound so get the picture the dry bones and Ezekiel starts to speak and the the bones get the picture the bones they're starting to be a rattling can you imagine how freaky this would be if this was a movie this would be an amazing movie the bones started rattling together can you hear that sound of all this valley filled with bones rattling together and they started to come together bone to bone and they begin to form skeletons there in this valley bone to bone they came together and as i looked behold there were sinews so tendons and flesh begin to cover over them and then all the flesh came. and this is a gruesome scene isn't it when you really think about it, then pretty soon skin covered these newly formed bodies, but they lay across the valley just as corpses, lifeless bodies, and there was no breath. You see, some of us have made it so far in God, and then we just stop. We look like we're capable of life, but we have no life in us. We look like we're capable of functioning as we should, and yet when it comes down to it, there's no life of God. And so we, if anything, we function in our own strength at best. So how does God want to create a movement in our hearts? I'm going to give you three different areas that I believe that God wants to do in our hearts. And we talked a little bit about one last week, and I'm going to expound upon it this week. And that's this. We've got to remove the heart of stone. Before we can have a heart of revival, the heart of stone has got to be Removed, Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What, what is that heart of stone? Let me give you some suggestions that, as to what that heart of stone may look like in our modern day lives. The heart of stone, I believe, can look like this. It's when we use God to get what we want. It creates a hard heart in us. You see, God is never to be a means to an end. God is the end of our affection. God's not a means to get our affections. And many times we use God. If we feel sad, we use God to have joy. If we feel angry, we use God to get peace. If we feel like we need a financial situation turnaround. We use God to get a financial turnaround. We have a bad marriage. We, we try to come back to God, to use God to fix our marriage. What happens is, eventually we have a hard heart because God doesn't just give us everything we want like, like candy at Halloween. God doesn't, doesn't give us everything that we want. And whenever God doesn't give us everything that we want or that we think we need, our heart gets hardened. And not only that, whenever we do get what we want, we've all of a sudden started to want the thing instead of God. And our heart becomes hard. 
Another way our heart becomes hard is when we refuse what God wants. So God has something he wants to accomplish, and we just say no. And over time, God will continue to give you opportunity after opportunity to serve him, to make it right, to go his way. But pretty soon, if you hear the voice of God over and over and over again, and you don't respond to it, your heart gets calloused. And then pretty soon, you can't even hear the voice of God anymore. Or maybe we just forget about God altogether, and we just want to do our own thing. Listen, I don't care uh, how far along in God you get, you never get beyond repentance. See, having a new heart is when we repent and we say, God, take this one from me and I want to have a new one. The second great awakening is one of my favorite guys in this is a guy named Charles Finney. Anybody heard of Charles Finney? Some of my favorite, I'm going to tell some of my favorite stories about these guys today because I think it's going to spark something in you. Charles Finney was a, he grew up in a non-Christian home. So John Wesley grew up in a Christian home. Charles Finney grew up in a non-Christian home. But he was one of those guys. He was a tall guy, real athletic. He's one of those guys that it just seemed like no matter what he did, he succeeded at. How many of you guys know somebody like that? It's like whatever they do, it just seemed like they did it well. This was this guy. And he, did, and he grew up, but, but he didn't know God. And he developed a lot of pride. Because he could do everything. He could just, everything he did, everybody knew he would do it well. And he succeeded wherever he went. But all of a sudden, he, start, he, he didn't go to church because he didn't see the point. Because he's like, well, th- those churches don't get their prayers answered. So why would I go to that church? But God started to work in his heart. And all of a sudden, stuff started to happen where he began to really be concerned about his soul. And the Holy Spirit was convicting him, and then he was feeling guilty on top of that. And he was really disturbed and really disrupting his life. And he began to not function in life like he should because he was so consumed. And he even said that he felt so consumed that he vowed to settle the issue of his soul once and for all because he felt like if if he didn't cry out that he would actually sink into hell. He was so disrupted and disturbed. And so he decided one day that he was going to settle the issue with God. But he didn't want to do it in a church because he had too much pride for that. He didn't want to do that where everybody could see. And so he decided he was going to go out into the woods where no one would be. And so he went way deep into the woods by himself. And he kneeled down and he was getting ready to settle this issue with God and to pray a prayer, to ask God to do whatever But he would hear rustling of the leaves. Maybe it was a squirrel or a breeze or something like that. And all of a sudden he'd jump up because he thought somebody was coming. He didn't want to have anybody hear him praying. He didn't want to have anyone see that he was coming to God. And so he bent down again and he began to to, uh, try to do business with God there. And then he would hear more sounds and he'd get up again. And then he realized finally after doing that several times that he had so much pride in his heart that he couldn't possibly come to God unless he got rid of it. So he decided there that it didn't matter what he looked like. It didn't matter what happened in his life. And something broke in his heart as this happened. He screamed out at the top of his lungs for God to come in and to surrender his heart to God. And he he says, I don't care who sees me. I don't care. And it just broke something. It broke pride in his life. It broke pride in his heart. And all of a sudden, he just got on fire for God on the inside. And it broke something completely loose. And the dry bones came to life. And he began to preach everywhere that he would go. Revival began to happen wherever he would go. People would come to know Christ all over. I mean, he would preach and, and people would come and get saved. Listen, they, they would say, they estimate that 80% of the people who came to Christ under his ministry stuck with it. 80%. Let me give you a little perspective. They estimate that 500,000 people responded to altar calls or responded to receive Christ under his ministry. That means something like 400,000 people estimated to stick with it. You say, wow, that's, that's awesome. Let me give you a little perspective for that. They estimate that under Billy Graham, it's 2%. That's not a knock on Billy Graham. I'm just trying to tell you that and the amazing things have happened under his ministry. I'm just telling you how much more effective percentage-wise what was going on with this dude. One of my favorite stories about Charles Finney just shows the power of God. He was, he was in New York. He was visiting his brother-in-law's factory. And he was just walking through the factory, just getting a tour. He wasn't there for a spiritual purpose. He was just walking through the factory. And as he was walking through the factory, some of the ladies who were in the factory working, they noticed that him and that he was a preacher and all this kind of stuff. And so they started pointing at him, snickering and laughing. It happens from time to time. Uh, and they just started to... Uh, 
to have a good time. And he, didn't, he wasn't there for any purpose. He didn't say a word. He simply looked over at them. And as he looked over at those ladies, the conviction and the power of God was so strong upon his ministry and upon this, this moment, the baton that he had been handed. He didn't say a word. And their laughter went from laughter to all of a sudden this lady began to just cry. The conviction of the Holy Spirit came all over her. She began to sob. She gave her heart to Christ right there. The ladies around her began to spread. The power of the Holy Spirit started to spread through that floor of the factory. Here's what was cool. There was another floor, other floors of the factory. And without even knowing that Charles Finney was in the building, people just spontaneously began to weep, began to give their lives to Christ on other floors of the factory as the Holy Spirit was beginning to move. That's what happens when revival happens on the inside of somebody's heart. And we can talk about revival, and we can talk about miracles, and we can talk about all those things are great, and we want to see those things. But I can tell you what I want to see in this area are people just giving their hearts fully devoted to Christ. Surrendering the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the love of God, being drawn to the love of God, and just out of that, just, just willing to say, God, everything I have is yours. Can you just imagine for just a moment, like Ezekiel, and that we would prophesy to this generation, prophesy to our homes, prophesy to this city, and speak to the dry bones, the spiritually dry bones of this city, and just see waves and waves and waves of people coming to Christ. I could see visions of that when I close my eyes at night. I'm serious. That's what God wants to do. But we have to ask ourselves the first question, is Jesus relevant in our heart? Let me ask it a little bit more personally. Is Jesus relevant when you're sitting around your house in the evening? Or is it just when we're in church? Or is it just when we're in a situation where we need to look spiritual, act spiritual, be a Christian at work? Is he relevant at home? Or are we promoting a product that we don't even use ourselves? Are we promoting a product that, I mean, <laughs> listen, I, I know this. I couldn't promote, a, I'd be a horrible salesman if I didn't believe in the product. I'd just, be, I'd just be like, guys, you don't want to buy this. Okay, I'm just sorry. Are we promoting a product we don't even use? See, what happens if we do that too long, we either become hypocrites or we stop using the product at all. Do we use the product that we promote? If it ain't working at home, it ain't working. If it ain't working in our marriage, it ain't working. If it ain't working in our heart, it, it ain't working. And as families, let me just speak to our families just for a little bit. As families, we have so much activity going on in our families. A lot of it's good stuff. It's a lot of good stuff. But I heard this a while back, and it's really kind of set the stage for how we parent our kids and how we steward our house. But families, uh, run into, families can run the risk of being experientially rich, yet relationally poor. Families can run the risk of being experientially rich, where we have all these experiences. We have these, these activities and events and vacations and academics, and we can have all these things, and they're not bad. But we can run the risk of being experientially rich, yet relationally disconnecting. Relationally. And, and here's what I want to suggest to you today. As followers of Jesus, we can run the risk of being experientially rich with God and yet relationally poor. We have all these books that we're reading and the podcasts we're listening to and the church services we're going to and the women's conference that we attended and all of these things are good and they're fine. But we can run the risk of having all these experiences and yet the relationship we have with God is not really working See, you can say your family's a priority all you want to, but they're not a priority until they're really a priority in your calendar. You can say relationships are a priority, and they're not really a priority until they're a, relationship, or until they're a, a priority in your calendar, until they feel it. You see, listen, let me just, I'm just getting off topic for just a second, but, but parents, listen, you can say you have all of these things that you do with your kids, but I just want to ask you the question, maybe you need to ask them, do they feel like that you feel like they're important or that they have a real relationship? Not that you have all these things for them, because we're great at providing all these experiences for our kids, but if you honestly sit down and say, do you feel 
like I value this relationship. And then we, we need to make adjustments because it doesn't matter if you feel like you're doing a great job with scheduling whatever. It doesn't matter until they feel like they're a priority in our calendars. It doesn't matter. We prior, I prioritize my family. I, I, I set it in the calendar. I just block it out. Nothing can get there. We, we prioritize our marriages. We, we have to do all these other things. But we've got to prioritize what's important. Maybe ask yourself this question or ask your family this question. Ask your spouse this question. Ask them this question. What kind of change in my schedule would really make you feel like a priority that I believe that you are? Gentlemen, ask your wife this. Well, but I got to take care of business and I got all this business stuff to do. And I got No, 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 no. Everything is on the table when it comes to our relationship with God and our relationship with our family. Everything's on the table. Your career is not more important than your marriage. Your marriage is not there to support your career. I don't even know why I'm preaching this today. Maybe somebody needs this. I don't know. And then we go back and we ask God. Because we can say God's a priority in our life. What if you ask God this question? God, what kind of change in my schedule would it take to make you feel like you're a priority in my life that I say that you are? What kind of change in my schedule would make you feel, God? What would it make you feel like? Because every movement of God, we can talk about moves of God, we can talk about John Wesley and Charles Finney and all these guys, but it doesn't matter until it happens in our heart. There's a guy who partnered with Charles Finney in that great revival, and they, they nicknamed him Father Nash. Father Nash, he went through a time in his life where his eyesight, he, he went dark completely with his eyes. His, he had some sort of infection with some eye disease and stuff. He couldn't read, he couldn't write, he couldn't do anything, and so he gave himself to prayer. And he decided he was going to pray. He decided that that was going to be his ministry. And so he partnered up with Charles Finney, and eventually he would be a part of Charles Finney's ministry, but he wouldn't be there for the big meetings. He would go into the towns and the cities that Charles Finney was getting ready to go into. He would go in weeks in advance, rent a room, find a room, and he would pray for weeks in advance for God to move. And then as soon as Charles Finney would come to town, he would move to the next town. And he would pray for weeks in advance And he saw hundreds of thousands of people on his list of prayer and the cities he would pray in that would come to Christ. Now, we could talk about Charles Finney and how much on fire he was, but I believe a lot of the success of Finney's ministry came down to Father Nash and his prayers because he was paving the way. He didn't have too much to show in his life. He didn't have a lot of uh, acclaim or fame. He didn't have a lot of, of, uh, you know, rewards in his life and Father Nash, when he died on December 20th, or 1831, he died. Four months later, Charles Finney stopped his ministry and then went to pastor a church. Just shows you how much. And I, I love Father Nash's tombstone. It says this, laborer with Finney, mighty in prayer. That's a good way to be remembered, right? Why? Because something happened inside of him that produced results outside. Now, guys, I know that's just point one, so i got to move pretty quick here. The second thing that God wants to do, and this is where I feel like it's, I felt all week that this is kind of a prophetic right now word for people here today. And this is what God wants to do. You think this is the end. You think the dry bones is the lot in life. This, this, what I'm about ready to tell you, I believe has a prophetic edge to it if you would choose to receive that. And it's this, God wants to rebuild the ruined places. There are places in our lives that have just been ruined and been broken down. I'm just speaking, I'm prophesying right now that God is going to rebuild those places in your life. And this scripture in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 35, says, And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. The dry, desolate, barren places of your life. God is going to turn around and rebuild and make them like lush, fertile soil for God's work to flourish once again. 
where you thought it was the end, you thought the season was over, you thought the baton had been dropped permanently, God is going to turn the desolate places into a garden of Eden where everything can be broke free, where everything can flourish. The nations that are left around you shall know that I'm the Lord. And because, why? I have rebuilt the ruined places. This is what God wants to do in us. And I've replanted that which is, is desolate. desolate. Listen, God doesn't want to just put something new. I believe God wants to replant something that you've already given up and let go. There's something you let go of a long time ago. God wants to replant that. And God wants to rebuild something in somebody. Dreams that have been lost, that you just let go of. Hopes that have been dashed. Relationships that have been soured. Once it was beautiful and you had, but now there's no hope. God says, I'm going to turn that place into a garden of Eden. I'm going to turn that place into a lush garden. The problem, the reason why we don't let that happen is because we've, let, we've taken on the identity of our dry bones. We've taken on our identity, the identity of someone who's an alcoholic. We've taken the identity of someone who's abused. We've taken the identity of someone who has no friends. We've taken the identity of someone who's depressed. We've taken the identity of someone who's disorganized. We've taken, taken the identity of someone who's disruptive, who's lonely, who doesn't have a chance, who's already had their chance, who's already had their day. And we take the identity of the dry bones. God says, that's not your identity. All of that can change. You don't have to live with that forever. God has a plan. Listen, we can, we can get so pragmatic here in the United States and here in church world where it's like, well, Sean, well, give me a one-step, two-step, three-step action plan. Listen, sometimes we can get so pragmatic and so much of a formula that we miss the supernatural that God wants to just do simply by receiving something. I think sometimes th things just need to be spoken out and spoken over. And if you choose to let this happen today and receive it, you don't need a three-step plan. Resurrection is not a three-step plan. It's a coming to life. And God wants to do that if you would receive that today. And, and when you take on the identity of your dry bones, here's what begins to happen. You lose any motivation for those dry bones to come to life. Why? Because you think if those dry bones come to life, I lose myself. Some of us need to lose ourselves. Some of us need those dry bones to not be our identity anymore. For God to... Bring us back to rebuild those places. Number three, God wants to raise up an army. God wants to raise up an army in this generation. Verse, thir chapter 37, verse 9. says, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Remember, there's lifeless corpses all over the valley. It's a gruesome sight. Then he says, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet as an exceedingly great army. God is wanting to raise up an army in our area. Not just of cultural Christians, but people who are ready to say, God, I will do anything you ask. Years ago, I was part of a, uh, I did a funeral for a soldier, and it was a massive event. I mean, it was, I mean, hundreds of soldiers there, and they had a certain protocol about how everything went and about how I had to walk and how I had to stand and when I had to say something and how they did the flag. And I mean, everything was exact. Everything was, was just had protocol and all sorts of, of, of specifics. Not one of those soldiers would have imagined, well, I don't really feel like doing the flag that way this day. I, I just, I'll just kind of do it my own way. No, they knew exactly what was supposed to happen. And I just wonder if we would treat our relationship with God in a way, not like he's the boss and we're just like a robotic person, but, but that anything is on the table and I'll do whatever you ask exactly how you ask me to do it. I don't have to make up my own way, but you're the boss, Lord. You're, you're in charge and I will follow you, an army that won't come and make excuses as to why we can't do what God has asked us to do. Because how many of you guys know if God asks us to do it, he's going to equip us with a way to do it. And so if it comes from God, it's possible. Ezekiel 37 verse 12, he says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, listen to this, this is for somebody too. Behold, I will open your graves 
and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. God wants to resurrect and revive some things in us. God wants to resurrect those dry spiritual bones on the inside of you this morning, if you will allow it. God wants to give you a breakthrough. God wants us to live as resurrected people, not lifeless corpses. God wants to do something. You say, well, you know, that's fine. I can see that happening for somebody else. I see that happening for Charles Finney and John Wesley and, and my neighbor and all. But I don't really see that happening for me. And I would say, maybe that's correct. Maybe God isn't going to do it for you. Because maybe you have the wrong perspective. Let me tell you why he might do it in you. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Listen, God may not want to do something in your life and in this city for you. He may want to do it for the sake of him and for the sake of his name. And he's simply looking for people who will say, yes, Lord. God, God may, you, see, we get so focused on ourselves that we, if we cannot connect the dots for how it benefits us, we want nothing to do with it. But God may want to do something in this generation and in our city and in our families that's for his name, that's for his glory, that's for his purposes, that's way bigger than any of us. I mean, I don't know what it is for you, but for me, he restarted something 11 years ago when we were planning this church, and we all sat around my living room one night, and I remember I, there was just a, a couple people there, and, and I handed out papers, and I, and I wrote down on the top, I, I wrote this, I dream of a church, dot, 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 and I asked them, I said, why don't you write down, if you could just start from scratch and there were no preconceived ideas except for the Bible as to what it would look like, what would your dream church be like? And so we began to write. And I don't know if they kept their papers, but I kept mine. And here's some of the things that God started to stir in me. I dream of a church that's full of people doing their best to live the Bible way rather than their own. I dream of a church that makes an impact on the community that's around us instead of just being on the bench. I dream of a church that's full of God's power, that's, that's not tainted by our influence, but God comes and he moves just in his purity and his holiness. I dream of a church that has real relationships and accountable friendships where we have that fellowship with one another. I dream of a church that befriends sinners for the saving of their souls. It's not just about these walls, but like last week we talked about what about the 53%. That's the church that I dream of. I dream of a church that dares to pray. I dream of a church that dares to pray big prayers. I, I dream of a church that has the compassion of Jesus and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, I don't see all of that yet. Maybe I'm looking at some dry bones, but you know what I'm doing? And maybe I'd like to invite you to do this with me is for us to prophesy to the dry bones, for us to speak those things into existence, for us to, to prophesy those things and say, Lord, that's our heart. That's what we want to see. What would revival look like in your heart? Ask yourself that question this morning. Just imagine what revival would look like in your heart. And if you can start to see with spiritual eyes, you may just have dry bones, but start to speak to those dry bones. Ezekiel 37, 14, And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and listen to this, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Okay. I'm going to have our, our prayer and ministry teams come right now. And I believe that something is going to happen right now. And we want to stand in the gap for those who need a breakthrough. I want to stand in the gap for those who maybe recognize that you have dry bones. That you need a fresh touch from God. 
that maybe you need to see something turn around in your life and your heart. You say, well, I don't have time to pray. I don't have time for this, you know. Listen, Jesus spent so much time in prayer, invested hours and hours and hours in prayer, and seconds doing miracles. And we need to pray if we want to be a part of a movement of God in our generation. We need to pray and prophesy and say, God, make these dry bones come back to life. There's nothing special about what we're going to do right now except to just have a moment with God. It's just a touch point of faith. It's just a moment to say, God, I'm seeing some dry bones or some dry areas in my life. And I want to have that moment right now where I just come before you and I just say, God, I need that. I need that fresh touch. Lord, start a revival in my heart. So would you guys stand up with me as we get ready to close with this song? We're going to sing a song. And then I'm going to invite you who want prayer to come down. And all it is is a point of agreement. And we're saying, God, start the kindling fire in my heart again. Start the fire in my heart again. Light that fire. Let these dry bones come back to life. So, Lord, we thank you so much that even if we see the dry areas, Lord, we know that all things are possible with you. We know that you're going to rebuild the ruined places. Because if you're here this morning and you need you need that fresh touch, you need that, that rebuilding to happen, those dreams that you let go of need to be rekindled this morning. This is, this is for you. This moment is for you. Don't let it pass you by. Lord, we pray right now, and we just prophesy right now to the dry bones in this city, to the dry bones in this area, to the dry bones in our family, to the dry bones in our heart, and we say, let breath, the life of God, just come in the name of Jesus. Come right now in the name of Jesus. Listen, if you need prayer right now, I want you to come right now. Make your way. Don't, don't delay. Don't let anything talk you out of it right now. You just come right now. And you say, I'm going to agree right now that God's going to do something right now in my heart. We've got plenty of time. If you need, just make a line if you need to. You say, that's me. I know exactly that that was me. Right now, just begin to come. And we're going to worship right now. We're going to worship. And listen, you can worship right there in your seat. But there's something about when we take a step of faith. There's something about a touch point of faith. We see it all throughout scripture that God begins to do something. So Lord, we just give this moment to you and we say, breathe on the dry bones. And Lord, we prophesy that it's gonna come to life in Jesus' name. Amen, let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.